HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. The first recipe book that we know of in history is about 3,000 years old. But what was it and where was it found? We're going to find out all about that and a lot more today on A Taste of the Past. Well, the very first cookbook that we know of in history is, well, sort of euphemistically known as the Babylonian cookbook, but it's a lot more than just a cookbook, and or a lot less than just a cookbook, and we're going to find all about, all about that um, today when we talk to Nawal Nasrallah. Nawal is a native of Baghdad, and she is an independent Iraqi scholar and a food writer, and she has written... Uh, the second edition of a wonderful, her wonderful book called Delights from the Garden of Eden, a cookbook and the history of Iraqi cuisine. And she is also the author in the edible series of Dates, a Global History. And uh, Noel, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank I'm you. so glad Thank you're you here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, this book is truly not just, I don't even I don't even think of it that much as just a cookbook. It is a textbook. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I enjoyed the first edition um, because of all the information. But, of course, this book I love even more because of all the wonderful photographs. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, because, you know, I knew that I wouldn't be able to have pictures or, you know, it won't be pictorially, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, attractive. But I wanted it to get out and to be seen because I had so many things to, you know, to tell the world about, uh, you know, uh, my cuisine, its history, its culture, and it was really not known. The only thing they knew at the time, of course, that was 2003. 
you know, Iraq, Kuwait, politics. And uh, I wanted people to see the other side of Iraq, you know, our culture, our food, uh, the, the bright side of our, of our history. Mm. And that was my chance. I said, so many people told me that, well, don't write a book about, you know, that big, that big, you know, divided recipes and history later on. I said, no. I want it in one piece. <laughs> yeah, well, especially for, for culinary historians, for food historians, for researchers. I mean, it's you have done a lot of the digging for us, and it's I know. wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, yeah, I wanted to put everything about the Iraqi cuisine in one book. I don't want the recipes in one part, the history in the other. I want them to, to be in one piece and to be um, enjoyed, you know, as a, a whole meal. Well, what is so nice about the book, too, is that you share a lot of your personal stories. Right. And, uh, and also a lot of uh, poetry and folklore. And, everything. And, oh. Everything. You <laughs> caricatures, you know, <laughs> songs, <laughs> folk tales, anything. Starting from the beginning. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought in a half an hour, how can we do the I entire know, history? I know. We cannot. But, yeah. um, but we can talk about the roots of Iraqi cuisine. Yeah. And, of course... Without leaving our listeners in too much suspense, we can talk about that Babylonian cookbook. Right, yeah. You know, uh, of course, when I first started uh, thinking about writing the book, it, it was meant to be a, a cookbook, you know, like with recipes. But when I started to uh, see all those nice books written about other, uh, you know, uh, cultures, I, you really, I really started to be jealous. I want this one for Iraq. <laughs> and I said, I can do it. It's not going to be just cookbook uh, recipes. I want to put all those nice things also, you know, related to the recipes. And in my research, you know, I was the first one really to benefit from my, my research because I came to know so many things. And when I saw those Babylonian recipes, I said, oh, God, what is this? Where was this? Where was this hidden? You know, and I was really like a crazy, worked like a crazy, you know, <laughs> telling everybody, look, I found this. Look, I discovered this. And... <laughs> Well, and and the, the the Babylonian recipes, by and large, came from the cuneiform tablets, right? Right, yeah, because that was the way of writing. Uh, it was, uh, um, you know, um, not they didn't write the way we write nowadays. They used uh, clay tablets, and they used to make impressions with a kind of wedged, uh, you know, like pencil, and uh, they dried it. And some sometimes they baked it. That was uh, that was some of them stayed. The other ones just disintegrated mm -hmm. when they were unearthed. And the result is that we have only three cuneiform tablets written in uh, uh, 1700 BC, and it is believed that they were written in Babylon. We have only three cuneiform tablets. But a lot of information packed A lot of information tablets. packed in this, despite the fact that the recipes were, you know, not like the recipes we know today, you know, with the, all the details of time, of quantities or so, but still, it gives you an impression how, how uh, you know, civilized, how uh, uh, advanced their, 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 their cooking was. I mean, who would have thought that in 1700 um, people would make something similar to chicken pie filled with something like bechamel sauce? Hmm. Um, so, you know, um, really, they really deserved the attention they got when they were, when they came out in, uh, in the 1980s. You know, the story of those recipes is that they were found around the 1930s. And uh, I think some people just uh, read just a few words and they thought they were pharmaceutical, uh, uh, you know, tablets. So, so they were put in drawers to be later on studied. And then Jean Batero, the uh, French archaeologist, 
he uh, when he started deciphering those cuneiform tablets, he discovered that was a cookbook. <laughs> I mean, that, and he worked and worked until his uh, um, findings were published in 1980s. And of course, they made a big uh, noise, you know, when they first came out. Uh, they were uh, translated into English and uh, um, some of the recipes were even cooked uh, following those recipes. Uh, the French uh, uh, journal Actuel, in the, you know, at the yes. time, they uh, um, cooked the, uh, the, this, this chicken, this bird pie. You know, I, I cannot say chicken because chicken came to the region in the first century BC. So that was pre-chicken time. So, but they used birds like Franklin and so, you know, mm-hmm. small birds. So they they baked this according to the recipe, and they thought they took a recipe, photos for it, and they thought it was a wonderful dish. <laughs> <laughs> and these well, and these tablets um, they do assume that the reader has a basic knowledge of cooking techniques. Right. But yeah, you are right. I mean, that was not meant as a teaching guide. Uh, of course, I mean, we have to remember that writing at the time was not like you know most of people were illiterate. And writing was difficult. They had to learn so many symbols. It was a, a kind of a profession. So, and you don't expect the cooks to read like we nowadays, you know, uh, read. Uh, there was no reading public like uh, like we have today. So it is, uh, you know, I think it is rightly uh, assumed that uh, those cookbooks were, you know, for the record. Uh, you know, for the, uh, for, you know, just to put down. I mean, the, the ancient Sumerians were, were fond of records they used to make records of everything and of course why not cooking but also I think it's also I mean the fact that they did take the time and the effort to put down those recipes that they you know they recognized the distinct I mean how distinguished their cuisine was and they wanted to you know uh, keep it for posterity. Preserve, right. Preserve yeah. it and pass yeah, it on, which, it, which yeah. indeed it has been. So it was not only just a mechanical recording of things, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, there, there, is, there was this element of a pride in their cuisine and, you know, kind of showing off, look, we have this. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of elements of pride, what about the elements of the cuisine? What what do you consider to be the basic elements of, of this cuisine, which has, which has uh, persisted to today? Stews, <laughs> I should say, <laughs> you know, because in Iraq today, this table dish is stew. It stew. has always been. When I read the medieval uh, cookbooks, so many of them, the basic dish was a stew. Uh, so I, so it, I mean, I was really surprised that one of the uh, cuneiform tablets was totally dedicated to stews. Huh. Um, uh, it had twenty-five recipes. And we're uh, talking about a tablet that's not yeah. a whole lot bigger than, no, no. than your me, hand. Yeah, let right? me tell you about how I, you know, how <laughs> my experience at Yale University, the, the Babylonian tablets. That's where yeah. they're housed, right, at Yale. After writing these, you know, I, I only had experience looking at them in pictures and magazines. So when we were on our way to New York, I, we decided to stop at the uh, museum. And I wanted to look at those, uh, you know, uh, those uh, recipes, so to speak, you know, <laughs> the cuneiform tablets. So we went there, and the curator, she allowed me, she, she opened the, you know, the case, and she allowed me to touch the cuneiform, this cuneiform tablet. Yeah. Oh, my God, I cannot tell you how, how that my feelings when I, when, I, when I laid my hand on this. It wasn't big. It was like the size of the palm of the hand, so smooth, and it was kind of tan, with all those tiny impressions, you know, those... Uh, 
And these were supposed to be recipes, the first documented <laughs> recipes in human history worldwide. And I said, I am holding it in my hand. Wow. And look what happened. Yeah. You know, of course, it was written on both sides. So I started looking at first side. And of course, as a habit, I turned it from left to right. And she was looking behind my back. She said, no, 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 no. This is not the way to turn the leaves of the cuneiform tablet. You flip it from bottom to, <laughs> from bottom to top. Oh. Oh, I said, oh, my God, I didn't know. Who would have thought, you yeah. know? That? Yeah. Interesting. Which, which makes sense. I mean, if you are holding a, a cuneiform tablet in your hand, I mean, why would you flip it from left to right? Yeah. You, you, you just take you know, two hands two and, hands and, turn and it flip over. it and then right again. <laughs> well, then foods were continued to be mentioned throughout the later yeah. history and, and um, uh, tales. Well, even more tablets that were found with the Epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, there, and foods are always mentioned there. Yeah. So what are the elements of, that you feel are, um, are really... Staying permanent. Yeah, sort yeah, of prominent with us. tastes. Yeah. Right. yeah, the things that... Um, let me tell you, first of all, about what, what they found and what, what those uh, cuneiform tablets were. They were three. Uh, the first one was totally given to, as I said, to stews. The second one dealt with bird uh, uh, bird uh, recipes. Um, some of them were served with porridges. The other, and uh, some of them were uh, made into pies. Um, and the third one was uh, heavily damaged, but it had two hints that also tells that you know something about the origins of certain of the traditions we still follow, culinary traditions we still follow these days. Let me talk about the damaged one because it is short and then go back to the, uh, to the longer ones. Mm -hmm. Yes, this short one, I saw that there's a reference to, um, it's not a complete uh, recipe. It, it deals with dough. You add meat to it and you bake it. This is exactly like lahma bajin. We make, you know, lahma bajin is uh, like they call it the Arabian pizza. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a flat, flattened flat bread dough with bre bread with uh, some meat topping on it. In Iraq, we call it khubza uh, which is the same idea, but we mix the meat with the with the bread and we we bake it. Um, so I see the beginnings of what you know what we have always been doing, you know, in, in like you know thousands of years ago. Mm. And the other one mentions something which is called butumtu. Um, the uh, French Assyriologists didn't know what it was, but to me, coming from Iraq, it rang a bell. Butumtu uh, is, it sounds similar to butum, and I know butum is terebinth berries. Terebinth, terebinth berries, they are, they belong to the same family, to the pistachio. So oh. they are kind of nuts. If you crack the shell, the hard shell, you get a very nice, uh, uh, you know, kernel, which uh, uh, tastes like pistachio. So I thought that if you add this nut to the dish, this is something we always, you know, we have been doing. This is a, a Middle Eastern thing. We add nuts and raisins, for example, to our dishes. This mm -hmm. is... So that's, you know, I found this very significant. And um, when we come to the chicken, of course, pies, um, I found certain recipes similar to those chicken, uh, I mean, bird, bird pies in the medieval uh, books. You know, they were, uh, I mean, I can, in my book, I mention certain, you know, uh, I, I translate some of those recipes and they show the similarities between how things really endured you know, cooking uh, birds, of course, later on chicken, the same way. But we come, let's come to the stews. Um, that is one of the most important techniques 
which shows, you know, uh, an advanced stage in cooking. Because grilling, of course, there's no variety in cooking. You, you right. put meat. I mean, what can you? I mean, you can brush it with oil. You can brush it with something. But the, the, the variations are limited. But with a stew, the limit is the sky. I That's mean, you right. can, <laughs> you right. can do anything, you know. All kinds of cuts of meat, all kinds of vegetables, all kinds of thickener agents, all kinds of colors. I mean, it's, it's inf- the infinite variety of a stew is really that shows the... The, uh, you know, the, the beauty of this uh, cuisine. Some of the recipes in this cuneiform tablet the, the, about the stews um, only had meat. Some of them mixed meat with vegetables. And one of them was even vegetarian. Oh. It didn't have meat. You know, yeah. it was turnip uh, stew. Uh, but the thing they, they do, I mean, they don't, they don't, don't just boil uh, those meats or boil those, uh, those vegetables. Um, they cooked yeah, they don't just put things on the stove and then forget all about them, you know. But um, they show that they, the, the, I mean, the cook had to tend to the pot. There are several stages where you need to add certain things. Um, first, you add with the with the meat, for example. But you have some of them. Sometimes in some of the recipes, you get rid of the first uh, boiling, and you use a fresh change of water. Uh, they want to get of all unsightly particles you know how when you boil meat and all those all this froth comes so they out were, they were concerned with presentation with as the presentation well, right? <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of aesthetic things you know the beauty of the dish so they get rid of all the things and then after the meat starts boiling they would season it with the onion with leeks with garlic onion leeks and garlic that are in all those right, uh, right. like like we do today yeah. we, can, we cannot cook without <laughs> onion and then of course comes the stage of adding the uh, the herbs and spices, you know, most of the spices we use today, they, they used back then. And even in names, they are similar, hmm. like uh, cumin, kamun in Arabic, kamunu. Um, they used to call it kamunu. We call it kamun. Um, uh, coriander. It was called uh, uh, kizibaru in Arabic nowadays. We call it kizbara. Hmm. Uh, saffron. We call it now Zafaran. It was called uh, Asupiranu. So, you know, even you can even recognize the names of the dishes, of, of the spices they used uh, at the time. And they used these things with, uh, you know, with control. Some, for example, one of the recipes would say, don't put much. Huh. Put just a little bit. So, the, the, I mean, the, there are, you know... Although those recipes were really not detailed like our uh, recipes, but... When something breaks or makes the dish, they mention it. Um, for example, um, there is a dish in which cured meat is cooked. Uh, they mention the, the time because it's ported. I mean, meat is already cooked. It doesn't need a lot of cooking. Right. So the, the, the recipe would say, put the meat. When it just starts to heat up, take it away from the fire. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, they were really, you know... They, they mentioned the things that are really uh, important. Well, it's interesting to know that, that it wasn't just for sustenance that they were right. consuming yeah. food, that they yeah. really for, cared for graphic, about taste. Yeah, yeah to yeah. gratify their yeah. uh, taste buds, to, for that, like a showmanship. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, uh, just to discuss a little bit about the, Mediter- the Mesopotamian diet, um, yeah. They, of course, they had, you mentioned a lot of the meats and the vegetables. Whatever you can think of, you know, it was available, like uh, grains, of the grains, they have uh, wheat and barley. 
Um, uh, they had lamb, mutton. They even, at the time, uh, they ate, uh, you know, pig's meat. Uh, it was, uh, of course, uh, not prohibited yet. And um, um, they had all kinds of vegetables, all kinds of fruits. Mm. So uh, we can assume that the diet was uh, balanced and uh, it was, you know, bountiful, of course. Uh, uh, and so um, for those who, of course... As we know, of course, in old times, those people who have money would enjoy a better they cuisine. Have everything, yeah. right. <laughs> and the poor people, of course, they would eat more vegetables. Because in one of the sayings, the Sumerian sayings, that says, in the, in the stomach of the poor Sumerians, uh, of this poor Sumerian, there, is, there aren't much vegetables. So if you are so poor, you wouldn't even afford the vegetables oh. which are so cheap. So yeah. it was just a. Yeah. Well, now, you, of course, did a lot of research on the date palm because yeah. you wrote the book, The Global History <laughs> yeah. of Date Palms. And that was the first domesticated fruit that we know of from that area, right? Yeah, yeah. It, was the, it is said that it was the, you know, the place, the Mesopotamia, where, the first, uh, where it was first domesticated. Because it was wild, of course, as we know. But then it was started to be domesticated in the Mesopotamia, then Egypt. And then, of course, when Alexander the Great came, they, they took the the dates with them, like to India. And they said that the date palms in India were the result of the, all the seeds that were thrown by <laughs> Alexander the Great soldiers. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Right, right. Uh, yeah. What And milk products. What about milk products? They didn't yeah, drink course. milk because right, there was um, no refrigeration. But. Yeah, well, no, they, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons because uh, it wasn't really quite popular. But I assume they drank, but it wasn't popular because it uh, went bad because of the hot weather. It went bad very quickly, but mm -hmm. they had other means of preserving it. They made it into yogurt. They make it into cheese. We have uh, uh, records that uh, tell us they, they knew uh, how to make about 20 kinds of cheese. Um, Clarified butter, you know, uh, that, could, old, which keeps right that keeps oh, forever. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and fat. Well, you mentioned stews, but fat was very important to them. Right. right? Yeah. A lot yeah. Of fat they like, in the they stews. Like, yeah. Um, I think it's a lot of it's high in calories, and they needed calories. Had, they, they needed the calories, but yeah. also in cooking the stews, you need the fat, uh, so that you can you know uh, cook the food and uh, you know prolonged cooking without really toughening drying the out, yeah, yeah. Dry, drying out the meat. And uh, there were many kinds of, um, they used uh, several kinds of fat. First of all, uh, for example, we have the samnu, samn, which is clarified butter. I mean, samn in Arabic, samnu at the time, uh -huh. the clarified butter. But this was used mostly in pastries. What they used in the, for their stews was the, uh, the, the fat tail of the sheep. Yeah, that was really the prize. Right. Yeah. And when I talk about the ta tail's fat, you know, the, the sheep's tail fat, not many people know what I am talking about. So I had to show the, the kind of uh, sheep we, we had and we, we still have in, 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 in the country. Um, most of the fat in the sheep is concentrated in one place, of course, which is good because the meat won't, you know, it would be leaner the fat will be accumulated in just one place, and which is the throughout. tail. Yeah. And it is a huge chunk of a pure fat, delicate fat, you know. Mm -hmm. um, of course, Herodotus, he, we know his exaggerations, okay. but he said he went to the region and he saw uh, some of the sheep, they had so large, uh, you know, tails, those fat tails, that they needed to put them on uh, carriages with wheels <laughs> <laughs> so that they can be carried 
Um, but it's have, a, <laughs> well, and all of these, all of these things. It's amazing that they um, they stayed. They stayed. Yeah, yeah. That you endured through all the different influences. There was, there was the Persian influence, the, the Ottoman, you know, reign and the they Ottoman all Empire. had this tails fat, you know. Yeah. And the the way they they ate it was that they rendered it, you know, and right. then they used it. Uh, up until the 1960s or something, I still remember my mother, our neighbors, everybody used to use this tail, uh, rendered tail fat to cook the stews. Hmm. It was mainly used for savory dishes. Right. You know, the, the clarified butter was for used pastries. for uh, pastry. Which we will talk about when yeah. we come back after <laughs> a brief break. You're listening to Let Me In by Snow Mine on the Heritage Radio Network.org. grass-fed beef pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef free-range, sustainably produced humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the American West Hi, we are back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Nawal Nasrallah, and she has her new edition out of Delights from the Garden of Eden, a wonderful book, and we're talking about how the food really hasn't changed a whole lot in 3,000 years now. Not really, surprisingly, <laughs> no. I mean, I the basics. Right. And, and uh, before the break, I was uh, talking about how it's amazing, the flavors, the 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 cooking techniques, the foods that right. have endured for all that time throughout all the different influences and reigns and powers and, and the Ottoman Empire and all right. that time. Right. Uh, when when did the major transition take place of, of Iraqi food in your mind? The transition from modern, from, 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 from uh, medieval, yeah, the medieval to modern times. Well, um, you know, we say that all those traditions endured, but when you go to a, an Iraqi house, you would see that they are cooking stews, you know, with tomato sauce. With uh-huh. the, you know, we use tomatoes. <laughs> so um, I can say that, you know, we had a kind of revolution in our kitchen around the 19th century or so mm-hmm. when the tomato became, when people started to realize that tomato is not harmful and it started to spread uh, until it came to the uh, Middle East. And people, of course, they were so delighted with this fruit. It's fruit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of, the, of, the, of the nightshade family. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, because well, before that, 
um, they used to have a lot of things in order to um, cook their stews. For example, for color, uh, of course, yellow was the most popular color. They used saffron. If they wanted green, they had to squeeze all kinds of vegetables like uh, parsley, Swiss chard, uh, coriander, get extract the juice to make their stews uh, green. Um, red wasn't really that, uh, you know, they were not interested in red. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they liked their stews to be sweet and sour. So for sourness, they, there were um, different options. Um, like uh, sour fruits, they use lemon juice, they use, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, citrus uh, uh, fruits. Um, and also, th- they, they, they also realized that there was something in the fermented sauces they, they, they used to make at the time. Um, in medieval times, it was called murri. But it was the same sauce that was made in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Rome, of course, different names. In ancient times, the difference is that they were fish-based. But in medieval times, by by medieval times, they learned how to make them cereal-based, which I think they they felt more comfortable with. Fermentation. Yeah, with the fermentation. fermentation Yeah, they used to mold bread deliberately in order to use them for making all those uh, sauces. And we know that those sauces, they have this kind of umami taste yes. that add depths to their to the to the food. Um, so instead of that, they had the tomato. It has all these things. <laughs> it has the color, it has the sourness, and it has this umami taste. So I think they. That's why uh, people don't know murri these days. You know, we stopped uh, uh, preparing those. They were uh, time consuming. And uh, we stopped doing these things. We have the tomato. Yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to uh, to step back a little bit back into the medieval period, but yeah. um, to talk about street food. Okay. It's, yeah. hard, you know, you, yeah. it's odd you think about medieval times and street food, but yeah. Yeah. but um, medieval Baghdad was known for its wonderful street food. Right. Yeah. I mean, they used to say that um, people used to go uh, take carry out food, and uh, <laughs> um, because it was cheaper than cooking at home. Because the fueling wood was expensive, oh, sure. you know, for people, so it was easier to go and buy kebab or uh, grilled meats and uh, all kinds of sambusa, all kinds of you know uh, fried foods, uh, desserts like uh, zalabia, like lozinaj, uh, uh, which is which is the I, I can you know I, I I always say this is the uh, precursor of our baklava, the baklava. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was really. Uh, you know, uh, a booming uh, market for uh, for market uh, for for uh, uh, street food, and people would just go. Not only that, not only grilled meat, but they used to, um, for example, go for uh, what we nowadays call pacha, which is the uh, uh, boiled heads, trotters, tripe. They used to put them in large cauldrons and. Uh, uh, let them simmer uh, during the night so that they'll be ready for the morning. For hmm. you know, early workers, they would have a hefty, uh, hefty <laughs> meal yeah. before before <laughs> their. Uh, yeah, but um, um, street food at the time, you know, if you go to the um, high class, it was it had a kind of stigma um, because it was cheap. Of course, it was not fit that for like uh, you know high class person to be seen to be caught. <laughs> Uh, eating these things, but they liked it and uh-huh. they went, but <laughs> still. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Now, uh, um, so much of the food that, that they liked, of course, were 
uh, you know, it was a rendition of a homemade right. product. Yeah, yeah. And when you get, go into your... Now that we are talking about this, you know, we have the same... Uh, street food also has the same stigma. It that, does. Yeah. No, today. but that it, it's not as good as uh, home-cooked food. It's, it's yeah, the yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. That, was, <laughs> that was the other thing why, you know, people were discouraged from eating. Well, and uh, they had communal kitchens and communal ovens as well. So, if, you right, know, yeah. so certain yeah. things were not available to them all the time, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, like... Breads, for example, there were different kinds of bread. Tanur bread, the tanur is the de- dome clay oven. Every household had this uh, 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 oven, and they used to bake the flat breads with nice bubbles on them, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but there was there were other kinds of bread they couldn't bake at home. It was called furrani. It was uh, ba- uh, baked in the uh, community, uh, like a commercial uh, brick oven, um, and these they also used to buy. They didn't right. make at home. Well, that's the very first chapter that you start with in your own recipes, right, yeah. and that's breads, the glory of the life. The glory of life, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are we without bread? That's right, that's right. And you brought two beautiful breads for me. And oh. I'm going to photograph them before I rip oh, into okay. them and put them on. Um, in, the, in the recipes that you chose uh, to include in the book, tell me how what you chose, why you chose them, and, and what they're... You know the representation, the recipes for this pro- the, for the, the book, program yeah. or for the book? no in the book in the book. Well, I chose I mean, them. Rough, you know, rough. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, these are all the dishes we cook, and I wanted my book to, as I told you, to be inclusive. Everything you know, you need to know about the Iraqi cuisine. I put it there, even you know certain things that you I don't expect people to cook uh, every day, such as the stuffed lamb. You know. Um, uh, for trying the recipe, I couldn't get a stuffed lamb, so I stuffed a turkey, a large turkey, in order <laughs> to try the recipe. I thought that was my uh, my better option. But still, you know, I mean, everything is tested and, uh, you know. So I chose whatever is Iraqi. Uh-huh. Uh, and the pastry section, of course, is your pastry section is to die for. <laughs> so look at the pictures and I yeah, draw. Well, okay. I, I, because I like pastries. Right. Um, tell me, so you chose a couple of recipes to talk about in particular that you thought right. were were uh, significant in the in the yeah. cuisine. Um, well, the the first one is a, a, a fish dish, which in Iraq we, especially Baghdad, we call mazgouf. Uh, mazgouf, the even the etymology of the word, nobody has really uh, fathomed what it really is. But I think mazgouf is it comes from the way the fish is grilled because it is suspended on uh, on wood, you know, pieces of wood. And uh, the fishes are arranged uh, around a camp-like fire, mm-hmm. and uh, the fire is lit, uh, you know, a flaring fire, you know, with the flames, so that the uh, the inside of the fish would be cooked. That's the first stage, and the second stage is to lay flat on the back, on their backs, on on the dying fire, so that the fish would cook nicely. This is a process that would take about an hour or so. Um, the fish usually uh, used in uh, Iraq is shabut, which is a, a, you know, a carp family. It belongs to the carp family. Mm-hmm. But when I tried it for the for the book, I used salmon, and it worked uh, really, you know, it was good. It works fine. Um, I chose this recipe for the program because I think that this the same dish was cooked even in ancient times, because in cooking dishes at the t- in cooking fish at the time they use certain um, cooking terminology that um, suggests the same way of cooking. For example, they said 
First, the, the fish is licked by the fire. So uh -huh. we assume yes. that the, there's a flaring fire, flame, you yes. know, like <laughs> <laughs> licking on the, on the fish. And then they say, lay it on the fire. So in those, you know, uh, two stages. And it is the kind of fish that uh, whenever, um, you know, foreigners come to the region, they would uh, really, they really have to uh, introduce to it and they like to taste it and they wrote about it. And in my book about, I write about what the foreigners said about this dish. They said some funny things. Um, for example, they would tell you when you go to, uh, to Baghdad along the river Tigris, they prepare this fish for you. They would tell you you have to eat the fish with your fingers. <laughs> uh, the reason, of course, the practical reason is that because river fish, especially, you know, in Iraq, is infested with the small bones as yeah, fine yeah. as, you know, like spins, you know, like needles. And you have really to be careful. You have to... Uh, pro, you know, to, to feel the fish with your fingers before you put it into your mouth. But one of the writers said, she said, yeah, well, this is the reason she gave me. But I also heard that they said eating fish with your fingers is like having, a, 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 you know, like a, making love uh, through an interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> there was another recipe you wanted to talk about that you felt... Um, was something that, that has endured. A, a, a yeah, well, there are more than one, but now I, I choose the, uh, the, pay, the, the cookie. Uh, nowadays, we call it klecha. Uh, it is the national cookie of Iraq. Um, and people, you know, we, we love it. And, uh, of course, other Arab countries, they cook something similar, but it's called ma'mul. We call it klecha. But, of course, we have, we have our own res uh, spices to add to it. And so when I started my research, I was really surprised that um, how ancient this uh, cookie is. Uh, we have, if you go back to medieval times, we have uh, cookies, a recipe for cooking, the, you know, for baking it exactly like we do it nowadays. But of course, the name is different. That's why people do not recognize it. It was called khushkananaj, uh, which is a borrowed uh, Persian word, which meant dry bread. Uh, it is dry because they are dry cookies. I mean, we know that these are dry cookies, and these are if you want to go to Hajj, to, if you want to go to uh, to travel far away, you take a bag full of those cookies because they stay for a long time. <laughs> they are not like you know delicate and greasy no, and all no. that. Okay, now back you go further back. We go to to ancient Mesopotamia, and we learn that they made the same cookies, more or less, of course. But it was called kolupu. Uh, kolupu. Of course, once again, nobody knows what's the what's the meaning of this. But I have a, my own theory, is that you know you know how we make uh, the, the, when we use molds for making those cookies so that the, you have nice impressions on the face of of individual uh, like right. wooden molds, like a you stamp, know, those, yeah, right. like mm -hmm. stamps. So I think this was called kolupu from the word kalab, which is mold, kolupu. Hmm. Or, or from kol because they were uh, they were round. They made round in celebration of the. Uh, of the goddess Ishtar, they made it for her, you know. Uh, they made it for her during, for the new year, which is in April, like Nowruz, you know, the, yes. this, uh, this time of the new year. And we, we, we were still, you know, it has always been the, uh, the, the cookie to, to cook for uh, the Eid, the, you know, our feasts, the religious feasts, medieval time, and even today. Ah, so, so I, you know, if you just look at the history of this cookie, this is enough to tell you you know, how enduring cuisines can be. 
And of course, this is the chance for uh, having those records, the Babylonian tablets, the medieval cookbooks, and of course, our modern practices. This is a, a unique chance for people to see how a cuisine, any given cuisine, can develop you know, throughout the centuries. Yes. You do not see this. You don't have, of course, the information enough to do this about other uh, cuisines. But here you have documents, you have records in order you know, to... To see this, yeah, you know. that's what makes it so fascinating. Yeah. It truly is. Thank you. That is, there's, as I said, there's too much information. <laughs> there's so much information. <laughs> yeah. It is wonderful, and we'll have to have you back to talk even oh, more about the, the next, the, the more modern phase. But yeah. um, I encourage listeners to uh, to to read the book and delights from the Garden of Eden. It is both a history book and a cookbook. Half and half. Half and half, right. <laughs> and Nawal Nasrallah, thank you so much yeah, for sharing welcome. your time. It's it was a, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure good. having you. Thank and you. I've been your host, Linda Palaccio, A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>